Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm joined on the line by Dr Enda Murray, who's the Festival Director of the Irish Film Festival Australia, which is running in different cities around the country over different weekends, but the important dates for Melbourne, the 1st to the 4th of September at the Kino Cinema. And Enda, I would imagine you must be somewhat delighted to be returning to cinemas in person with the festival, which has been online for the last couple of years. Hello, Richard. Today, Maratatu. Um, I'm very happy to be going back into the cinemas. Yes, it's great to um, meet people face to face, and it's great to sit in a dark room and have a shared experience looking at these uh, these films, um, these new films from Ireland on a on a big screen in full Technicolor. The fact that the festival wasn't able to have that shared communal experience in 2020 and 2021, obviously a setback and disappointing. The flip side of that was by having an all-digital program, I would imagine you expanded your footprint somewhat significantly and allowed people who perhaps would otherwise never have been able to attend the festival to watch some of this new Irish cinema. Yeah, correct and right. Now, um, we had a strange experience. We went online at the last minute in um, 2020, um, and we were a little bit more prepared in, in 2021. But um, I think we, we... So in 2021, we actually had the most successful festival yet in its eight years. Uh, part of that is due to the fact that Ireland is so far away and we were really impacted by the um, travel restrictions. And so most people who, you know, would go home from, you know... Time to time, certainly would go home if there's, you know, family uh, celebrations or emergencies. weren't able to do that, and we um, Irish people felt very isolated. And so um, last last year, um, they really embraced the, the online, and uh, so much so that we've had so, so so such positive response, and so many people saying, you know, we we really want to keep uh, watching the films from where we are. Uh, out in Whoop Whoop or we're out in the suburbs, we've got kids or just had too hard to get in the cinemas so to keep up the, the, the online. And so we're doing a hybrid this year with uh, a, a program in the cinemas and then a, uh, a different program. Some of the same films, but a lot new one, a lot new ones on the, um, on the online. Which is an intriguing uh, thing to see because a lot of film festivals now, and not just film festivals, but Sydney Film Festival, for example, did live events, but then also filmed them and streamed them into regional theatres, for example. So that hybrid model for a film festival, MIF is doing it as well with MIF in cinemas at the moment, but MIF Play accessible as well online. But the fact that you're having a, a series of films in cinemas and then adding a whole heap of new, predominantly new films to the digital model. Talk to us a little bit about that strategy. Why not just show the same films online that you're showing in cinemas? Okay, so uh, it's complicated. Um, some of the films that we are putting into the cinemas, we, uh, uh, we, we, we talk to the distributors and they say, no, we, we don't want to put them online yet. 
Um, so there is that element that, you know, uh, the industry is uh, still catching up. Um, the, 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 other, the, other, um, the other aspect of it is, is it's all new. So we're just trying this one and see what happens and, you know, um, learn as we go. Because it, nobody, nobody's done this type of stuff before. But, um, you know, we, 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 we are uh, encouraged by the fact that anecdotally, a third of Australians have got some Irish background. So just, that, that, that's nine and a half percent of the population. And that's 2.4 million people around around the country. Um, you know, officially, uh, officially can put Irish as, as their um, as their heritage. So we we are connecting with a lot of um, Irish people in in, in far flung places in, in in Australia and and also out in the suburbs. And 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 you know, coming back to the to, to the question, I, I think that um, streaming is the way to go. Um, you know, that's how a lot of people are getting their material. Very few people are watching broadcast TV the way they, the way they used to um, years ago. And so, I think uh, you know, it's it just makes sense to help keep 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 your your hand in with the um, with the digital delivery. The flip side of that is that yes, people are predominantly and increasingly streaming things online, but that shared cinematic experience is something that really can't be beat. And I know uh, one of the films that you're screening this year, uh, The Quiet Girl, I'm not going to try and pronounce its Irish title because I'll probably mangle it. I'm Colleen Kuhn. Thank you. Um, Colleen Kuhn. Yep. So this is yep. showing at MIF and it, it will go into uh, general release uh, in, a, in about a month or so, I believe. But I love the fact, and this is, reminds me of something that um, one of the previous directors of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival spoke about, reprogramming films that might have already been seen at another festival. But when you're seeing it with the community that film's makers had in mind when they were making it, it's a very different experience. So this is an Irish language film. Uh, I believe it's being it's uh, Ireland's nomination for uh, best foreign language film at the Oscars. And there's a huge buzz around it. Yes, there is. Um, so... Um it's very exciting. It's 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 a wonderful film, and 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 it's it's very uh, sweet film, and it's 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 not a big budget film, and it's uh, so it, it's it's intriguing, but it, it is certainly worth the the, the effort to, to go and see it. Um, I think with um, with the Irish community, what is a big uh, attraction is the idea of an event, idea of an event where you come together and you share. Um, and you you you, sh- you share this um, this art, um, and um, it, um, it it brings you together. And then I, you know after the after the uh, the film, there's there's lots of postmortems, and um, you know you, you, you're uh, building on that um, experience that you've had. Um, so I think. Um, possibly film is, is is replacing some of the old cultural um, uh, practices. Uh, film is a, is a medium for the for the 21st century, and and so I think it, it's uh, you know those things thrown, to, uh, all of those things combined that that make the um, 
the, the cinema experience for the, for the Irish Film Festival. Um, so wonderful. I've, I've got to mention our legendary opening nights, you know, with live music and uh, refreshments. And, um, you know, that, uh, that certainly is something that, that people look forward to. And to come back to The Quiet Girl, talk to us a little bit about the film itself. Why do you think it's resonating so strongly with audiences, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere? I mean, it's an Irish language film, uh, and we we seem to be seeing kind of uh, a rise in Irish language cinema. Uh, The film Arroch, which I think was at the festival last year or the year before, really potent famine drama, again, in Irish language. Why are we seeing more films in Irish language, and why is this particular film film resonating so strongly with audiences? Well, uh, Irish language has, has, has never gone away. Um, it, it, it got hammered, um, in, you know, a generation ago. Um, and there has been a, um, oh, I hate the word revival, but, um, you know, there's, there's an Irish language uh, TV channel uh, radio Nagel talk the, the the Irish language radio has been very strong for for a while, but um, you know it's part of our um, it's part of our music and our culture and part of who we are. When I speak Gaelic, I become a, an Irish man in the same way that when I speak French, you know I become a Frenchman. And uh, it, 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 it's um, it's hard to put into words, but um, I think. You know, we are seeing the same thing with indigenous languages in in Australia. That you know, people will um, will want to have a, a few words uh, to, um, to, to you know to gain entry into the the, the cultural world. Um, the in practical terms, the um, Irish Film Board, Screen, Screen Ireland, have um, uh, got funded um, these films so that. Uh, Colin, Colin Barred, the director, uh, when I spoke to him in the um, in the Q, Q and A, uh, which we've, uh, I've also done, we, we, we uh, throw in some Q and As with the uh, with the films. But he spoke about the fact that when he got the green light for the film, he did not have to go and search for money for post production or um, distribution. Distribution. He didn't have to compromise with commissioning editors or commercial distributors, he was able to um, make the film that he wanted to, to make from the start. So there, there are two Irish language films being, being um, 100% funded each year. And um, I, I would say, you know, going back, um, I was back there last month and spoke, I spoke a lot of Gaelic with, uh, with people. Um, and so I, I think uh, it's, it's certainly, you know, I don't see... Ireland never being 100% Irish speaking, but certainly, uh, you know, it's our co- it's our it's our language and it's our code, and um, it's something that we can we can share among ourselves and sometimes have a joke among ourselves that um, uh, is just for us. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Dr Ender Murray, who's the Festival Director for the Irish Film Festival Australia, which is running here in Melbourne from the 1st to the 4th of September at the Kino Cinema. Now, Ender, you mentioned uh, Screen Island, and I wanted to ask, 
Do Screen Island support genre filmmaking and horror filmmaking in particular in a way that is different from Australia? We don't see that many Australian horror films, for example, but at your festival and elsewhere, there seems to be a real strong wave of Irish horror cinema to the point where you've got two horror films this year, a horror comedy about vampires for the the second year in a row, uh, and also uh, the kind of much darker and, and moodier... You Are Not My Mother, which is a, as much a commentary on Irish traditional Irish folklore and myth and also the contemporary struggle and awareness around mental health issues as much as it's a horror film. Why is horror cinema so popular uh, with Irish filmmakers? Well, um, first of all, I'll go back to history. Sheridan Le Fanu wrote the, the first lesbian vampire uh, uh, story in, in the 1870s, and, uh, and, and then Bram Stoker wrote the original Dracula in 1893, both, both of whom were, were um, alumni of, of my old college, Trinity College in, in, in Dublin. So we've actually got a history, a long history of, um, of, of literature. Um, I, th- I think... Um, that uh, you know, we've got a, the, the, the very there's a very strong um, uh, interest and, and link with with the occult. So you you, you rightly mentioned uh, you are not my mother and the, the link to Halloween, um, which is based on the Celtic festival Samhain, which um, I tire of every year telling people uh, Halloween is not an American festival; it's an Irish festival. It, it comes from Samhain, the, all, all, uh, which was hijacked by the the Christian church to be um, All Souls Day, but this this is an old uh, Celtic um, festival when the, the boundaries between this world and, and the, the netherworld are, are thin. So the, there's, the, there's the history there. With, with the um, Screen Ireland, um, I think um, that rather than um, you know having a, a lot of um, um, horror, we, we actually support Irish films right across the board. And unfortunately, I don't think that you know in the last ten years that Australia has been supporting its um, its own stories. It hasn't been telling Australian stories. We we make more films in Ireland with a population of five million, more features each year than New South Wales do in a um, you know with a half, half as many again in the population, seven and a half million. So. You know, hopefully um, the the new uh, rules that um, oblige the streaming services to have a, um, a, a minimum um, of, of um, Australian production is going to help this uh, situation. Um, it's it's been it's been you know existing in Europe for several years that there's this, the streaming big streaming companies have got a, a minimum of you know. Pr- Production um, that they spend that they've got to do in in in, in the individual countries, but it, it hasn't come to Australia, and so there are some um, uh, the the, the, the uh, uh, what's it called uh, uh, you know regulations um, uh, policy policy that's the word I'm looking for. There's some policy uh, answers to, to that uh, question, but. I, yeah, I, th- I think like Ireland um, has invested. Um, you know, it does have the commercial side in the same way that Australia brings in the the, the big shows, and Ireland's brought in uh, big shows. Um, 
we're also the only Irish, English-speaking country in in um, in the EU now that, that Britain's gone. So we're kind of nicely placed between England and, and America. Um, I think that helps with, with you know with uh, with people developing their skills and going away and, and coming back. Um, but in general, Ireland, uh, I think the revenue last year was a half a billion dollars, half a billion euro. Um, so, which is uh, which is quite significant. So, the Irish filmmaking is in a good place. Well, and certainly the the cross section uh, and selection of films that are showing at the Irish Film Festival this year uh, are testament to the the state of health of the festival. We've got drama, we've got comedy, we've got documentary, uh, including the opening night film Steps of Freedom, which looks at the way that Irish dance has become a global phenomenon to the point where one of the the most highly acclaimed Irish dancers at the moment is an Australian lad. Yeah, um, I happened to be living in in England in, in the early '90s when uh, Riverdance came came on the scene, and those shows, the Riverdance shows and the Lord of the Dance, they've been seen by more than two million people live worldwide. So it really is a, a phenomenon. But um, one of the things that was uh, apparent back then was that the uh, dancers. Uh, even in the original uh, river dance, were, were, were um, uh, mainly comprised of um, Australians, of Americans, um, Michael Flatley um, being a, a prime example, um, and and, um, and and English people from the, from the Irish diaspora. So, um, uh, you know, one I think it, it showed two things was was that the diaspora had, um, you know clung to um, and celebrated their, their dance, uh, but also that uh, Irish dance was an international, had become an international thing. And um, I, I think it has um, uh, benefited from that. So I was delighted to see this um, uh, this film. Um, it's got a fantastic uh, soundtrack by uh, uh, Cormac Begley and um, also... Um, Colin McAnimer, who was was uh, uh, with the Frames a long time ago, um, but it's got it's 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 also you know cultural history looks how looks at how Irish um, uh, migrants and um, black migrants in in the states um, danced together and developed um, you know the, the the Broadway shows they they they, they you know they developed this um, very uh, commercial end of of dance, uh, a lot of uh, tap steps are, are Irish and and, uh, and, and and black, and and so um, it, it really does emphasise the, the the fact that um, I think I think Irish uh, culture it, it, it reflected the national um, com- coming of age in the 90s, and the, the, you know started the Celtic Tiger. So. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy this film. Um, I'm, a, I'm a music nerd, so uh, it, it was, uh, it was great to see it. Steps of Freedom is the opening night film at this year's Irish Film Festival. There's many other films in the program. Jump online and check it out, irishfilmfestival.com.au. The festival, uh, its physical incarnation from the 1st to the 4th of September at the Kino Cinema in Collins Street in the CBD, and then 
online from the 30th of September until the 16th of October. irishfilmfestival.com.au for film details and tickets. Ender Murray, thank you so much for joining us on the program today and uh, I look forward to seeing a film or two uh, in the cinemas. Thanks very much for having me, Richard Triple R. Now, what's the opposite of waves in the ocean? Maybe it's a dried up lake, uh, which is my slightly awkward segue to introduce my next guests, Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth, join us in the studio to talk about Where Lakes Once Had Water, which is showing out at Tarawara Museum of Art in Healesville. Sonia and David, lovely to catch up with you both. It's been a while. Yes, nice nice to be here, Richard. Great to see you. Now, as artists, you're kind of well-known for working with sound, working with video. This latest work feels not only like a continuation or extension of that practice, but also feels as if you are working with both the natural world, but also working with the scientific world as well. It's a kind of intriguing merging of what I know about your work, but bringing in new elements and new additions. Sonia, tell us a little bit more. Well, it came out of an invitation to accompany a bunch of scientists out into the centre of the Northern Territory. And, of course, that was such an incredible offer. Uh, We definitely took it up. Um, We were matched with some scientists, some earth scientists, uh, one from the University of Wollongong, one from James James Cook University in Cairns, and we went out on their field trips, like, for a couple of years, just during, just, I should explain, just during the winter months because it's too punishingly hot to do anything um, outside the middle of winter out in the Northern Territory, like working with no cover. And they had been digging and delving into the soils, what they call the sediments, of Lake Woods, which is a lake sometimes. <laughs> it's mostly not a lake. It's um, what's called an ephemeral lake or a player lake uh, right in the middle of the Northern Territory. What were those scientists doing and looking for in the sediment, David? Well, they were um, looking... Yeah, this was our question, just uh, because we were not given a lot of um, pre-information. So we were approached as artists, would you like to accompany the scientists? And we... um, we, we had to sort of pick it up from there and see what the scientists were doing and find out what it was they were digging, digging down for. And so w- when we started, um, we, when we arrived, we started filming and recording them straight away and found that they were digging and getting like soil samples, but they're like little grains of sand um, from under um, uh, the lake. And what they can work out is the, the last time that bit of sand saw sunlight and, and so they'll know when that bit of sand was laid down and whether it was the wind or, or water that laid it down. And so all of this meticulous uh, an- analysis of these little sand um, grains, which are almost like photographs, they can start to map when the um, earth, uh, yeah, w- when that part of um, the landscape was last exposed to sunlight and, and, and so when it was wet also and when, and when it was dry. So for us, though, it looked like we, we, yeah, we became fascinating with this desire to sort of bang and scrape and dig 
um, it, you know, like play the earth, as it were, you know, as though it was a, an instrument and um, get this kind of, in, extract this information. The works that have grown out of this experience, uh, we're talking about a, uh, a major video work and there's also three accompanying sound pieces out at Tarawari Museum of Art as well. And having watched and listened to some of it, it struck me, at what point did you begin to realise that what you were documenting and the work that you were going to create out of it was not documenting the landscape so much, but documenting the scientific digging and the ticking of instruments uh, and all of those aspects, as opposed to the, the soundscape of wind against sand, for example, or uh, leaves in trees or bird calls, which are featured in the work. But it feels as if its heart is you connecting with this scientific process as you say, the, 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 them playing the earth as an instrument and you capturing that and adding to it in the work. Yes. Uh, there's, um, there are quite a few reactions to, to um, seeing the work. Um, a few people um, talk about how there's a lack of natural sounds in the work. Um, there's almost this kind of buzzing and fizzing and a series of energies that we evoke through the soundtrack um, of the work. And it's, it's a parallel to what the scientists are trying to get at. The scientists are trying to get at things that they can't see. So, so at the same time, we're, we're there on country with a bunch of local First Nations people, with scientists, with some uh, Indigenous rangers. It, it all varies from place to place. But we're all there trying to get at um, uh, or get, connect with forces that are kind of invisible or perhaps inaudible. So we used uh, a range of techniques to capture things that were in the environment, but maybe not using normal microphones, different microphone techniques. Maybe David might <laughs> sort of talk a bit more about that because David was had qu quite a... A kit of different things. Well, it was interesting in that there was very little uh, uh, nature uh, sounds uh, to be had. It's, it's kind of cattle country, and it's like the cattle have kind of obliterated the first 30 centimetres of most of the Northern Territory, it has to be said. And so there's very, you know, there's very little biodiversity there uh, uh, that, that we, we could see. So you, you actually couldn't make a very big natural soundscape. There were a few birds, maybe, if you were lucky, but not a lot going on it. So what to record? And so it became that um, uh, that I had these electromagnetic uh, microphones, which are rather like uh, radio aerials uh, or a guitar pickup. And if you put them near the scientific equipment that they're using to monitor and dig, there's a whole lot of all these buzzes and, and whirs and uh, sounds can be picked up with an electromagnetic microphone. And so it's really the sounds of the instruments thinking and processing on our behalf. Um, and so it became like analogous, I suppose, to our kind of thinking and thought about wanting to understand the world. It seems like both the indigenous uh, community that we were with, they have their, 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 their narratives, creation stories, uh, and uh, we, we hear a couple of those in, in the work spontaneously kind of delivered that we, we captured. So they have their stories, and I guess artists, as we are artists, we're framing, in a way, 
um, the world, and um, the scientists are trying to create their stories, which are you know usually delivered in these kind of slightly impenetrable um, publications. Um, so, th- but there seems to, all of them seem to be uh, have this human desire. There seems to be this human desire, full stop, to understand and interpret the external world outside of our inner selves. And so, I think that sort of buzzing and whirring and scraping is is a bit like our our. Um, in, inner thinking and brain and uh, um, married with um, the computer, um, you know, the technologies that we and have the at our un- disposal. unseen energies of the environment, you know, the, and the, 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 the forces, the, the, the deep time that perhaps we can imagine when we're standing out there on country together with a, with a whole bunch of people from different perspectives. Uh, and and it's, it, it's just there are all these kind of energies that, that we try to embody in the soundtrack it's spiritual in a way like so you know there is that aspect the energies nudges into the sort of you know our version of a spiritual uh, um, um, appreciation which might parallel indigenous one of the things that intrigues me is that this is a work in a way that is grappling with the ineffable and the indescribable Um, to try to think about deep time boggles the mind in, in so many ways. Yes, as you can be out on country and get a sense of it, but trying to feel it and convey it uh, uh, by grappling with or documenting, Sonia, as you said, invisible or inaudible sources, a huge challenge for artists working in video and sound to try to explore and present and convey something that is invisible or inaudible. Um, how did this experience change you both? <laughs> That's really funny. Funny question. Uh, it did change us, yeah. Uh, I kind of long for the red earth of Australia a lot. We went out to Broken Hill recently and out in Menindee Lakes. Just, you know, we, we wanted to get back out, um, you know, away from the cities and in those, you know, areas that, you know, are, are very rarely visited. And you got you, you got to sort of you know, it's a massive effort to sort of get out to a lot of these places and, and, you know, often you have to be hosted as well, you have to be welcomed and we were really lucky to, you know, in that first instance, we were really riding on the coattails of the um, scientists because it's the scientists um, through their kind of organisation called CARBA, um, which is based at University of Wollongong. They've they've been fostering a lot of... Um, uh, uh, relationships with Indigenous communities over many, many years. They, they basically don't go out and dig anymore unless, you know, in every instance um, there are local First Nations peoples with them, like literally with them um, on, a, on a daily basis. So, I mean, that, that was really amazing to see um, just how, you know, approaches to, you know, so, you know earth science, archaeology... And you know, river water science has really changed. In particular, with this organisation, I can't say it's you know across the board with every organisation. Uh, yeah, and and it's of course quite critical for a lot of the communities because the community um, based out at Lake Woods is just opposite the Beetaloo region. So any information they can get um, to help with their anti-fracking campaign, um, you know, is quite critical for them. It's probably worth just building on what Sonia says. Um, it, uh, one realization or change in perspective was just how these um, 
large spaces that we you know think of in the as the outback and all that kind of thing are so heavily contested so hugely kind of layered um that there's the whole fracking aspect there's the cattle there's now kind of um plans to put um massive solar fields um and sell um power to singapore uh like a whole cattle station wants to kind of give over its land uh, to do that and so and then of course there's gas and uh well that's the fracking and um uh, and then the 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 water issues um and it's so contested by um <laughs> these sort of leases and various uh, ownerships and uh, th- these lands are not certainly not you know they're not desolate they're not um forgotten and they're not sort of wide open spaces in in the Trifford sense of the word it's kind they're, they're kind of you know very marked and uh, delineated and uh, and fought over if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth about where lakes once had water, which is showing now until the 13th of November at Tarawara Museum of Art. It's a, a major kind of video work from the two of them, accompanied by three related sound works. Uh, and I think I want to start with the last one first, because, again, it's referencing country, it's referencing locality, uh, it's uh, helping audibly embody the the location on Wurundjeri country where Tarawara Museum of Art is, the piece Sound Before Sound 3, Liabirdity. <laughs> it's a kooky work. <laughs> it's um, it's um, best experienced at Tarawara, of course, but I, I, I will try to describe it. Um, it's, it's an outdoor piece that we've... Um, that, that plays sound as you arrive at Tarawara. And you hear what you think are a number of bird calls. And um, as people might know, uh, the lyrebird, uh, which is um, indigenous to the Yarra Ranges, um, is a specialist in mimicking the sounds of other birds. But it's also a, a specialist at mimicking the sounds of humans. Car which doors is, closing, yes. car alarms, babies crying. So we hear those as well. Um, so it, it's as much a, this this lie. It's it's the liabirdness of this work rather than it being a, a liabird. It is a liabird, and all you hear are liabird sounds. But it's kind of a lot of them are the ones that we we become preoccupied with the liabird. It seems like us humans are, are quite fascinated when a bird a bird is replays the world or proclaims its territory by mimicking. All these other people who are proclaiming territory, including construction workers, because you hear the sounds of construction coming out of this lyrebird as well. So it's a very strange call, and we don't quite understand why the lyrebird does this. It almost feels in some ways like the two of you are lyrebirds yourselves, kind of recording the world, remixing it and playing it back to us. <laughs> but that's um, a fair, fair comment, I would say. Uh, yeah, a lot of our projects... Are generated by going places and having encounters in different contexts. Uh, you know, in fact, you know that's that's kind of the most exciting thing to do, really, just to sort of throw yourself into an unknown space and territory, and just you know, without too much pressure, try and slowly make build up a project around you know some aspects of what you encounter. Uh, that encounter might be with the archives of a museum, for example, which is one of the other works out of Tarawara. Yeah, that's an interesting um, experience. We were at the Powerhouse Museum working uh, with a team there who have undertaken uh, a project of recording 
objects from the museum. I mean, they've got 500,000 plus objects. Sound recording. And so now they're making sound recordings. Like, what could some of these objects sound like uh, if we play them? But how do you play something that's, uh, you know, like a wire... Um, making machine or um, a, a, a set of scales. How do you perform them? Which is very interesting um, because they've been taken out of their original context. But um, it's quite a, a fascinating um, project and one that we captured on video, where you know this team of three people are very carefully showing you know care and respect to these everyday objects which have been plucked out of history and figuring out ways to to, to make have them make sound. And the final work, or rather the first work, Sound Before Sound 1, one and three scores, is again, it is a historical object. It's a, an old player piano roll that you've uh, connected with lights and audio. Tell us a little bit about this one, Sonia. Uh, I might just say a preamble and say that David um, approached me and said, oh, there's an opportunity to get a whole bunch of piano rolls from the National Sound and Film Archive because they're getting rid of them. <laughs> and, um, uh, he, 380, by the way. Yeah, 380. So I, I was kind of a bit gobsmacked <laughs> uh, when, when, when the thought Storage of having even more, more yeah, stuff around the place. Uh, but we, we went through every single one of those piano rolls and and educated ourselves. Um, you know, they're these hundred-year-old... We didn't play old, them, though. No, we didn't play them, no. Just looking at them. They're these hundred-year-old objects um, that were made, you know, that they look a little bit like punch cards, old computer punch cards. They look like knitting patterns or they look like kind of pre-digital graphic, you know, arrays. And they were used to slot into what was known as a player piano 100 years ago to drive the actual piano keys. So you could have a professional uh, player in your own home, you know, doing some kind of, you know, sonata or, you know, something else, uh, you know, to entertain you. So these ones you can play in. Yeah, that's what you're saying. You can get a professional person to play in, like it makes a recording, just like everyone's familiar with this on, on computers now because they use piano roll technique but this this was um our work kind of captures the moment in between expression like someone's just played in and it it's the role will be replayed at some stage but what we show is the containment of that expression as data which actually becomes quite beautiful because <laughs> there's a whole lot of little graphs and things that, that that go along with that. So it has parallels with the collection of data in science in a way. And parallels with where lakes once had water as well. Exactly. Kind of capturing raw data and reconfiguring it as art. Exactly. That's why it, it just had to be there. <laughs> Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth, where lakes once had water, is showing until the 13th of November at Tarawara Museum of Art, located at 313 Healesville, Yarra Glen Road, just outside of Healesville itself. For more info, jump online, www.twma.com.au. That's twma.com.au. For more information about Tarawara Museum of Art, including where lakes once had water, and also the concurrent exhibition Rhythms of the Earth. So there's a nice parallel there. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Great. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
time for us to talk about dance and the museum slash gallery sector and how they interact. I'm joined in the studio by curator Hannah Matthews from Monash University Museum of Art. And the museum, Mama for short, is hosting Shelley Lassica, When I Am Not There. It's a survey exhibition and series of performances by Shelley, who's one of Australia's most significant choreographers. But Hannah, I've seen dance in museums before. Over in Perth, for example, the uh, Co3 Dance Company didn't have a permanent rehearsal studio, so they made a deal with the museum to develop work, rehearse, practice and stage work in the museum. I've seen dance performances in galleries as part of White Night and other events, but it does feel unusual for an art museum like Mama to say choreography is just as much an art form as the visual arts that we normally showcase? Well, there's a lot to address there. Mm. <laughs> Start but to unpack thinking, that. Well, let's go back even further. Let's go back to like Dieglev, Ballet Brusé, Rite of Spring. Okay, these are collaborations between dancers, choreographers, visual artists, Picasso, Matisse, etc. Moving through, and I guess I am talking to a kind of Northern Hemisphere, Western European you know, North American history here, but then thinking about people like Yvonne Rayner, Trisha Brown, you know, there's a whole kind of slew around New York and, Northern, you know, Judson School who move into museums and galleries. Then you get to the 80s and things go, well, and, you know, this is sort of when we come back to this Australian context, you get to the 80s, like, you know, street culture, dance culture, club culture, you know, the milieu of what's happening in the various universities, art schools, art history, psychoanalysis, fashion, you know, it's all blowing up. And in Australia, in Melbourne, 1980s, Shelley Lassiker is leaving school, going to university, joining this kind of community of people and purposely staying independent, purposely working in dialogue, collaboration with people from other disciplines, but really pursuing choreography and dance as a physical thinking practice. And so Mama, choosing to work, invite Shelley, really, we invited Shelley to come and work with us on a survey, a new commission for the museum. She quickly told us it would be a performance exhibition. These things are equal. One is not more than another. These things are in conversation that can't be unattached or separated in my practice. Um, This was, what, two to three years ago? No, two years ago, actually. Um, it was really important because she's been working in this space for four decades and she is informed by those, you know, historical kind of experiences, you know, the records, the practices that I've just identified and more. But she's also really important because she has influenced and mentored and supported those practices that have been entering more and more into the museum in the last 15 years. And, I mean, this is probably a little bit not cool to say, Uh, broadcast-wise, but Melbourne has such an extraordinary dance community and culture. It has an equally extraordinary visual arts community. And I think since the 80s, there's been so much activity at the intersection of those spaces. You know, a contemporary, a museum working with contemporary art, a gallery working with contemporary art, an artist-run space working with contemporary art, would, there would be absences if choreographic and dance practices weren't considered and included as part of those conversations about contemporary culture. So, you know, Mama doing this, we're a university art museum, we're very interested in 
supporting artists, thinking about artists' practice, learning from their practices. We're in, interested in um, teaching and learning that can come through artist-led projects like this. Um, but for us to do this has really been made possible by one of the small generous acts of the former federal government through the Australian Research Council. Um, you know, these kind of go around all the time, but the arts is generally not uh, a recipient very often of these ARC research grants. But we were really, really lucky. Uh, a group called Precarious Movements, Choreography and the Museum, of which Mama is involved with, it's led by the University of New South Wales. It also involves our NGV colleagues here in Melbourne, the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney, and the Tate in London, as well as Shelley and um, Rochelle Haley as independent artists also advising that panel. We've kind of been in formal conversation about this intersection between dance and the museum. And then the University of New South Wales said, why don't we put in an application to the ARC to really focus through the practices of artists, through case studies of inviting artists into the museum, to really identify and determine the best practice around bringing dance and dancers into the museum. And then let's share that information, not only in the Australian context, but internationally. Let's make a difference around this work, making sure it's uh, valued, it's rigorous, there is care involved, all those things. And I think in the Australian context, starting with Shelley was really important. She's important uh, for multiple reasons, partially because of the collaboration she's had over the years, the the spirit of rigorous exploration that uh, has infused her work for decades, the places she has created and performed in as well, taking dance out of the studio, out of the theatre, into different environments as well. To place her into this gallery context, does it feel as if it is honouring and celebrating her or is it isolating her from a, a broader community in a way by putting her in, in, in a slightly different spotlight? Um, it's so interesting. We had a private view last night and Shelley hates to be pigeonholed and pinned down, let it be said. And my job as a curator is ideally not to do those things but certainly to communicate a practice to a broader audience. And um, I would say, as, you, as you've already um, noted, Richard, Relationships and collaboration have been important since the get-go. Sites, context, everything is about context for Shelley. And, you know, we know that, you know, she... Actually, she's the only choreographic artist to have been represented by a commercial gallery, Anna Schwartz Gallery, where she presented many works. Athenaeum, uh, cloaking rooms, basketball courts, you know, all these different spaces where dance may or may not be expected. But she's always been interested in the context of the museum and the gallery. And so... When I am not there is a very interesting provocation because it brings together this performance exhibition, which brings into conversation an ensemble performance of eight dancers, including Shelley, and I'm here talking because she is dancing right now in the museum. They're in the museum every opening hour. So the exhibition is not without the performance and the performance is not without the exhibition. Um... She's been working with Frank Tetatz, who's a sound producer that she's worked with, again, for decades, and he's created an extraordinary soundscape. Six channels, spatialised, eight hours, slightly different every day. Um, she's also worked in consultation with Lisa Radford, an artist here, um, well-loved, known in Melbourne, and also Colby Vexler, very interesting architectural background. You know, she's sort of brought all these collaborators, including her creative producer, Zoe Theodore, They've been working over the last two to three years since the invitation was made, you know, devising 
informing building this choreography together. Now, some are new relationships, some are old relationships. Um, one of the dancers has been dancing with Shelley for 20 years. One or two is the first time. But they've been working together in lockdowns, out of lockdowns, in parks, five kilometres, online, blah, 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 in studios whenever they got a chance to be together. But they built this incredibly rich choreography between them that has kind of been influenced by Shelley and Zoe trawling back through Shelley's archive. That definitely is very present. And Frank was also noting yesterday, he's also had to trawl back through his archive to kind of revisit and match the work in the space. But they all came into the museum maybe 10 days ago now. And in the museum, inverted commas, ex this exhibition kind of content is various materials that I have drawn from the archive in conversation with Shelley. And they also represent all these other relationships from the four decades, like there's original artworks by Kathy Temin and Callum, Callum Morton and Ree May and others. There are costumes from the last 40 years, including very early ones that Shelley's mother, Margaret Lassiker, made with her. There is convertibles and sculptures that Shelley's commissioned for the new work. And then there are kind of, there's research materials, there's rehearsal footage, but there is no documentation. I was curious about that because <laughs> I wondered, for example, the the notation of dance yeah. is is a, a specialist form in and of itself. And I wondered, would that be incorporated into the, the exhibition? Or because of the title, When I Am Not There, mm. kind of, when Shelley and the dancers are not there, what is left in the space? What remains? It's interesting. The title is so provocative. Um, and as Shelley was talking to last night, the eye is really subjective but can also be very embodied because when you say it in your head or out loud, you automatically put yourself in the eye. Um, the project doesn't happen without... Like, the project isn't without them, essentially. Like, people are not allowed into the museum without the performers there. And um, in a way, the work has already been happening for two years. It's just that it opened to the public this Tuesday. Um, I know Shelley would say uh, people should come back anytime, all the time, as much as they can because the work is really 10 days long. It doesn't stop and start and recommence and repeat itself every day. It is actually evolving from the time it opened 10am Tuesday the 16th to the time it closes 4pm Saturday the 27th of August. So it's a sustained sequential it's dance a, piece. Yeah, I mean she really, um, you know, while there is a definitely a sort of research survey element, what Shelley insisted on, performance exhibition, the equality and parity between those things, the other thing that she really insisted on and has been a great curatorial learning experience for me and our team at MAMA is that through the choreography, there's no historicising of what's happening in the space. Even those things from the 80s and 90s, um, even our museum layout, even the Kirsten Thompson design architecture, even the eight performers in the space, the choreography, Frank's sound, all these things are kind of brought into this continuous moment in the space, and it doesn't repeat. There's no text in the space. We've pushed everything into this room sheet so you can kind of delve into that in terms of what you are seeing and its relevance and provenance and the acknowledgement of Shelley's various collaborators. But it's, there's purposely no text in the space because the idea is that you are also in this moment. You are also suspended. And it's really the choreography that kind of plays with those durations and temporalities. We can't do that quite as explicitly as Shelley has done as 
normally in the museum with these other kind of, I guess, conventional A, capital kind of artworks. Um, and Shelley, yeah, Shelley, that's quite a radical gesture that Shelley has brought to this sort of surveying kind of context. I'm curious to, th- to know what will remain of the work after the exhibition is over. Oh, it's such an interesting question. Because traditionally often dance performances are documented. They are filmed, for example, either both in the rehearsal stage and the finished work. And the finished documentation may be a static camera up the back just so it is recorded for posterity as opposed to a full eight different cameras and editor working to whatever. But And exhibitions are documented through catalogues and essays and other ephemera. What will remain... Where where does it exist? Shelley Lassiker... (laughs) When I am not there, once when I am not there is over. Yeah. Well, I mean, one point to make is that the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney has come on as a co-commissioner, so it will be presented there middle of next 2023, and that will be a different context because the choreography will be responding to a uh, different layout of the exhibition spaces, a different organisation and how it functions as a museum and all of that culture and behaviour. At MAMA... You know, Shelley, I think, like all choreographers and dancers, things are documented, like there's great photography by Jackie Shelton, there's lots of video footage that's being taken. But one of the things that really came up and also that Shelley was quite strident about, and I really respect this, um, there could be no documentation in the show. She she's, believes in documentation, but not documentation shown in place of performance. And given there is this ensemble work, which was also in reference to the archive, there's no photographs, there's no video documentation. There was not to be nothing on the wall and no documentation in the exhibition. These were kind of like two kind of parameters to work in. I think where will the work reside? Well, I mean, most obviously in our memories and experiences of the space, and I can uh, let you know, your listeners know already, we opened on Tuesday. There have been so many classes through already, but there have been individuals who are coming and sitting for three or four hours and they've come back every day. Also to note, as I said, you know, Shelley is working with seven other performers, many of whom she would work with for a long time. You know, we know the body as an archive, so it exists in their bodies. It exists in their own work. It exists in those relationships. And I think that's another thing about Shelley and her practice to note is those collaborations are really important because she's inviting people very specifically for who they are what they do, what they know, and the expertise that they're bringing. So the dancers that she's bringing with, particularly those she's worked with, I mean, there's already a shorthand. They each have each other's kind of knowledge in each other's body. But it's sort of... She has this very delicate way of kind of tapping into that, but then also leaving agency with those dancers to kind of navigate through the work, make their own decisions, bring their own histories and knowledges into the work itself. I think that's also a very sort of distinct part of her practice that's embedded in the process. Shelley Lassiker, when I am when I am not there, is showing slash performing at Mama until the the twenty seventh of August. Hannah, for listeners who are intrigued by this conversation and want to experience the work themselves, do they need to book? Is no, it... no, it is absolutely like Mama is a very um, welcoming space. Please come anytime during the week. We're there ten a.m. to five p.m. and on Saturdays we're there twelve to five. Come anytime, stay as long as you want, sit wherever you want, perch wherever you want, lean wherever you want. Uh, There is no um, perfect single way to experience the work. It's just being there. Uh, And I must also mention Saturday the 27th of August, we're having a closing event. 
from 4 to 6 p.m., where we have invited um, a number of individuals who have either witnessed Shelley's work over the last four decades, been in the work, have designed costumes, have written scripts, all kinds of things, and invited them to come to Mama for the afternoon to reflect, um, you know, through their voices orally, um, their experiences of Shelley's work. So I guess that's a different type of documentation. A living library. A living library, yeah. So um, that is open to the public as well, that closing event, and it promises to be a really special occasion um, for the dance world here and the art world here and the fashion world here, all the wonderful worlds um, that Shelley is a part of, and it is a public event, so please um, come along. Shelley Lassica, when I am not there on now at MUMA, the Monash University Museum of Art, located on the ground floor of Building F at Monash University's Caulfield campus on Dandenong Road and just a very short walk from Caulfield Station as well. More info at www.monash.edu forward slash MUMA. That's monash.edu forward slash M-U-M-A. And Shelley Lassica, when I am not there, being performed until the 27th of August. August. I've been chatting with curator Hannah Matthews. Hannah, thank you so much for coming in and for such a fascinating conversation. Pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 